Well, I'd like to start at maybe a rather strange place.、Um, my goal is to go through a couple of sections of the Gospel of John with you, but first I intend to start at Matthew chapter three. So, if you'd turn your scriptures to Matthew chapter three, a little bit strange, perhaps, but nonetheless, I think an important way of grounding our conversation. So, as you look at Matthew, of course, just skimming through, trying to get a general idea of where we are in Matthew's text and what he's up to. Matthew begins with a genealogy of Christ in chapter one. His goal to connect us theologically and biologically to the Old Testament and to the people of God, showing that when Christ is born, he is born of this. Old Testament family and fulfillment of God's promise that goes all the way back to the patriarchs,、um, all the way back to Adam and Eve. In fact, and so Jesus comes born of Mary,、um, with his father being our heavenly Father, and so he is born into this line, but not of natural birth, but birth from above, as it were. All right. What comes next? The visit of the wise men. The wise men are Gentiles. So Matthew's gospel begins with this very Jewish kind of treatment. This Jesus in the line of the Hebrew people, and immediately expands to say, but he has come for the Gentiles as well, for the the Magi, the kings, the、uh, Gentiles, and so we see an expanding of his ministry. Now, what we also see then, as we go on, are the events in regard to Jesus' life—the flight to Egypt, Herod killing the children,、um, and the return to Nazareth.、Um, Nazareth, excuse me. All of this、um, indicating, you know, a part of Matthew's gospel presentation is going to be Jesus as the new Israel, as the new people of God, and so you see some of this harkening back to the Old Testament themes in regard to Israel going into Egypt, coming out of Egypt. Of course,、um, the Pharaoh、uh, slaughtered many of the Hebrew children. Moses was spared. You see that parallel in Herod killing the children. Jesus is spared. Okay, and then we get into chapter three of Matthew, which that kind of ends the the childhood narrative. Just two very brief chapters, and kind of even less than that, depending on how you think about it. Into chapter three, where John the Baptist shows up preparing the way, and then we encounter Jesus. And <clears throat> in Matthew's gospel, we come into the first red-letter words. That is the first words of Jesus in the gospel. So, do you think then they would be foundational for how to read the rest of the gospel? Yes, definitely. <laughs> okay. So no sooner than John comes baptizing, then look at Matthew chapter three verse thirteen. We understand that his name is Jesus. He's going to come and save the people from their sin. We understand that he's the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. We understand that he's the new Israel, the the head and substance of the new people of God. And then verse thirteen. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, 
I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? What's John's objection? What's the nature of his objection? Why does he think that Jesus shouldn't be there being baptized? Correct. Jesus is sinless. He's the Messiah. The, the Old Testament scriptures have said the one who comes is sinless, is the Messiah. In fact, the Old Testament scriptures have taught that he's divine, that he's the, the God in human flesh, Yahweh in human flesh. So he doesn't need to be baptized. Rather, John needs to be baptized by him. In this regard, John's absolutely correct, and yet not. Okay? So, how does Jesus respond? First read letters of Matthew's Gospel. But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Question, whose righteousness is being fulfilled? We've just said that John's objection is that Jesus is sinless. Jesus is the Lamb of God. Jesus is Yahweh in human flesh. Is it his righteousness that needs to be fulfilled? Clearly not. Why did Jesus come to fulfill our righteousness? So then what's happening in baptism such that we who are unrighteous are becoming righteous via Jesus' baptism? What do you think? Right. He's being baptized into our sins. So think of this. Think of this. You're, you're, in the, uh, you're in the shower, and the drain has gotten clogged. And the shower's kind of filling up down around your feet and up around your ankles. How clean is that water? Not clean. And you might go through your whole bath. You know, you might, maybe you're visiting someone's house and you don't want to say anything. You go, you go through your whole shower, I mean, you, you get all rinsed off. You're clean, but what's, what are those waters like at your feet? They're gross. Gross. They're teeming with the dirt of your body. It's the same picture theologically. Those waters are gross water. Sinners are entering the river and having their sins washed away and their sins are staying in the river. So for Jesus, the sinless Son of God, to come into that river and be baptized is not for his righteousness, but for our righteousness. How? Well, to steal a line from the Old Testament scriptures, God laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is an incredible picture of God laying on him the iniquity of us all. All those, those sinful waters we can think of, every single baptism that's ever taken place, in a sense, being included in those waters that are poured over his holy head. So God is laying upon him the sins of, of us all, and thus righteousness is being fulfilled. God can justly be gracious to sinners because all sins are going on Jesus and he will bear justice in our place. Make sense? Okay, so now we have this even more foundational understanding of who Jesus is, what he's come to do, these first words of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew, so foundational for the fulfilling or to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. All right, so picture him in the Jordan. He's, he's gone under the water. He comes up from out of the water. And behold, the heavens were 
opened. Now think about that. Why is that language included there? The heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove coming to rest on him. One could see the the Holy Spirit like a dove simply materializing or coming down or being outside of the visual spectrum and suddenly entering it. So what I want you to see is when the scriptures say the heavens are open, they're actually highlighting something. Because of Jesus going into those waters and the sins being laid upon him, what then happens? The fulfilling of all righteousness. He comes up out of those waters as the sin bears, and suddenly what happens? The heavens that were closed to us and to our world are suddenly opened. Now open to him, and then thus also open to all who have faith in him, all who are going to be baptized into him, The heavens are opened. So again, it behooves us to really slow down and consider this text since it's so foundational to the Gospel of Matthew, so foundational to what it is, to understanding what it is that Jesus has come to do. To bear our sins, to be baptized into our sins, and then coming up out, the heavens are opened. Okay, The Spirit of God descends upon him. Now this is important because... What's happened in his baptism? You've got water and spirit. Water and spirit. Now, if we want to go back to the most foundational or ancient origin of water and spirit, where do you think it is that we see it? Genesis. Yeah, the the first verse and first chapter of Genesis. Remember the the, uh, hovering over the face of the deep. Hovering over the face of the waters is the Holy Spirit. And then God speaks. So even in Genesis, you have God who is, who is there, and you have the Holy Spirit hovering over the face of the waters, and then God speaks. So you have Father, Spirit, and when he's speaking, what do you have? Word. As John points out, in the beginning was the Word. Notice how Genesis starts. In the beginning, God made. How does John start? In the beginning was the... It's as if John's saying, did you miss it? Did did you miss it? Because Jesus was there in Genesis. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit revealed there. Okay. Now, this is obviously going to be a little bit too nebulous. um, But I think you'll see what I'm after. Can you tell me a time in which the Holy Trinity is revealed more clearly from Genesis chapter 1 all the way up to Jesus' baptism? You'd have a really hard time coming up with anything. There are other places in which the Trinity is revealed, but it's always more subtle always more difficult to discern or see. Jesus immediately comes upon the scene. He is immediately baptized into our sins to fulfill all righteousness. He comes up out of the waters, and what is descending? The Holy Spirit above those waters. We're already taken back to new creation. Okay, And then what does the voice from heaven say? This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So who's speaking? The Father, 
Because he says, this is my son, and we obviously know that Jesus is the son. So Father, Son, and Holy Spirit revealed in the baptism of Jesus. New creation revealed in the baptism of Jesus. He, as the sin bearer, as the one on whom God lays the iniquity of us all, revealed in the baptism of Jesus. And what else? The heavens opened. So when we talk about entering the heavens, and when we talk about the intermediate state of, well, grandma died and now she's in heaven, or when I die, I'm going to heaven, we want to reflect on the fact that this is why Christ came, foundationally, is to open to us the heavens. Okay, well, more could be made um, there. We could spend much more time um, talking about this. But what I want you to see here in something so foundational in Matthew's Gospel is that even the idea, even the idea that heaven would be opened to sinners is predicated upon the work of Jesus. Does that make sense? Crucifixion of Jesus, baptism of Jesus, all of it. You can see here too, maybe before we move on, what it means to have Christian baptism then. Because it's to enter those waters with Jesus. It's to have your sins become his sins, and his righteousness become your righteousness. It's to participate in the new creation. That's why Paul will say, what matters is neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Talking about baptism, entering into those waters. As we're going to see in just a minute, it's being born again or born from above, being born of water and the Spirit. And as we join with him in those baptismal waters, we also see that we are brought into the life of the Trinity. We become one with the Son. And so the words that the Father speaks from heaven, he speaks to us. This is my beloved Son, child of God, I gladly say it. I am baptized into Christ. We become sons of God in those waters, and the Father claims us as his own. The Holy Spirit also is poured out upon us, and we receive him. Titus chapter 3 teaches about this. And then for our purposes this morning, what else do we see? Baptized into Christ, what's open to us? The heavens. The heavens are torn open, ripped open to us. So you can see then how foundational baptism is in terms of the scriptures, in terms of God's word, in terms of the deepest possible reality, but then also ontologically, experientially, who we are, what we are, is all determined baptismally, what our identity is, and where we're able to go and be with the Lord forever. All right, well, let me pause there. As I said, much more could be said about this, but for our purposes, I just want you to see that the opening of heaven is part of all of this foundation laid by Christ. So any thoughts you have, any questions you have? Um, and if not, we can just keep on going. There's, there's one hand. Two things. One, one is kind of trivial. The other, I think, maybe less. Uh, you said he came up out of the water and suggesting that the water was over his head or something like that. And I know a lot of the, the you know, uh, Baptists uh, use this as a sign that we should always be, be uh, immersed. immersed. Mm-hmm. But one thing to note, when Philip baptized the eunuch, it said that he came up out of the water. Not the eunuch, 
Philip, mm. suggesting did was Philip immersed when he came up out of the water? No, the water is down because water flows downhill. So water is always down. So when you leave water, you're always coming up out of it. Yeah. So they could have been waiting in the Jordan and Jesus could have, could have, I'm not saying he was, I think it's likely he was yeah. immersed. Yeah, yeah. But just to point, it's not really a proof test, test, text for immersion. For immersion. No, yeah. no, yeah. certainly not. Um, there's no, nowhere is it specified how much water. You right know, makes for a baptism. Right, and it never actually <laughs> says that John immersed anybody. Right, right. it says right. he baptized them, which just means he washed them. Jesus, when he was supposed to went and washed his hands at the Pharisees, baptized his hands. Apparently, correct. So, correct. so yeah, yeah, where it's practical to do immersion, it's fine, and and there seems to be you know some textual evidence of immersion in the early church. And yet even as early as, I mean, Luther preferred it because Luther loved the imagery of death and resurrection in immersion right. and drowning and being raised again. So I think in an ideal world, you'd practice immersion. But is that what makes baptism? No, absolutely not. No, and th th there's evidence that the early church did practice well, immersion early, and that some of them didn't. As early as the first... Um, as early as the first century in the Didache, you've got caveat for um, non-immersion. Sure. You can think of as even as the gospel spreads to colder climes, how are, you know, dead of winter in Germany, you're not going to want to go out to the nearest river and do immersion. It will definitely be a death, but maybe not a resurrection. <laughs> yeah, and furthermore, if you're looking for some sort of proof text there. Uh, in Mark chapter 7, so bap, baptizo, I wash, um, is, is used in Mark chapter 7 for um, what the Pharisees do with the ceremonial washing of couches. So unless we're to believe that they all hoisted their couches up on their shoulders, <laughs> took them down to the Jordan and plunged them in, <laughs> made sure they were immersed and brought up, um, we can see that simply baptizo means to wash. Immersed? Great. Not immersed? Fine. And of course, even, even in the colder climes where you have, um, the, the baptismal font in place and just water poured over the head for the baptism, for the washing, um, then you have, you have people pointing out, theologians pointing out that there's symbolic importance in that as well. Even the derogatory term, you know, sprinkling. Have you been sprinkled? Which is kind of this derogatory term against, against those that don't immerse. Um, is kind of one of those tongue-in-cheek things because sprinkling has fantastic biblical precedent. You were brought into the Old Covenant by sprinkling. Remember how Moses baptized the people in the blood, sprinkling them in the blood of bulls? So we are brought into the New Covenant by the sprinkling of um, that, that water that is mixed with the blood of Christ. We've washed our robes in the blood of the Lamb, made them white. So anyway, all this is neither here nor there. I mean, this is people just making up stuff to fight about. Yeah. Has that ever happened in the history of the church? <laughs> today. Yeah, just yeah, a little today, bit. Yeah. Just a little bit. The other question or, or comment I had was it's, that maybe is less trivial. That, that one, I, you know, like you said, I think it's, you know, the amount of water is not, not germane. Sure. Um, but uh, it seems like the Spirit of God is still hovering over the water. Absolutely. Right? Because where is he? he? The heavens open and there he is brooding over the water that Jesus is being baptized in. Absolutely. It's the source yeah. of the new creation.
Job tells us that, um, uh, or rather, in the book of Job, we are told that as God is creating, now he's what's assumed is he's already created the angelic beings, and as he's creating the rest of the world, they're singing for joy as they watch. Can you even imagine what that would be like? Now, what are we doing when the water, when the Spirit is hovering over the waters of holy baptism, and we see a little child of the old age being brought into those waters and coming out a new creation, and we're singing for joy? It's the same thing. It's just veiled. It's accessible only through faith. You can't see it with your eyes. You're not going to perceive it with your fleshly reason. But if you believe the Word of God, then that's what it is. And then that informs what you see with your eyes and what you think with your head. And you can sing with joy as the angels of old did in the original creation as you look at the new creation taking place. Augustine has just beautiful treatment of this, I think in a couple of different places, where he talks about the glory of the first creation and then how much more the glory of the second creation. Because it's one thing to go from nothing to good. It's another thing to go from thrashed and miserable and fallen to what we're ultimately going to, which is perfection. And so he even, Augustine even says, would you rather see the first creation or the, the new creation? The answer is the new, the new. There's no better time to be alive, no preferable time to be alive than now in the New Testament era when we're witnessing the height and the telos of all God's actions and doings in this age. Now, we'll all participate in that age which is to come, and that holds untold wonders as well, but that we should know where we are, and we should not be afraid to marvel at the things of God that, again, are made accessible only to faith, because he says it in his word, so that it has to be believed, or else it won't be perceived. Okay, shall we, uh, shall we move on a little then? All right, so remember, the Spirit coming down, the waters, remember that connection. Let's go to John 3, because now we're going to get into something that I think is um, of the utmost importance, particularly if we're accustomed to using this language. And there's nothing wrong with this language. I use this language, it's fine. But sometimes we talk about this life and the next. This life and the next life. All right, no problem, but... Sometimes what that can lend itself to is too much discontinuity. This life is one thing, the next life is another thing. And really, I think it's from this framework that formally people come to this idea of like, well, I know you in this life, but I might not know you in the next life. I know who I am in this life, but I might not know myself in the next life. Okay, well, let's start to, let's start to reshape our thinking of life more foundationally. And that's the goal for today, chiefly, is to be in the Gospel of John and to reshape our view of life. Okay? So, John chapter 3 is a good place to start. And I only want to do a section of chapter 3, because there's so much here. If you've ever read uh, John's Gospel, you know this. It's sort of deceptively simple. It's the Gospel we tend to give people who are brand new to Christianity, and we say, here, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. It's kind of like the ocean. Here, play in the shoreline. You'll be fine and you'll enjoy it. But then if you know anything about John's Gospel, you know it goes really deep, really fast. And 
I kind of want to avoid some of that depth today, just simply because we're after, we're after a different purpose. Okay, verse 1 of chapter 3. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Okay, what's the problem? What's the problem? This is very polite, but what's the problem? Has Jesus claimed that God is with him? That he has come from God? Yeah. <laughs> or has he claimed in word and deed that he is God? And so you can see, look, I'm willing to say that you've come from God. I'm willing to say that God is with you, but I'm not yet ready to make the confession that you are God, that you are the Son of God. Okay. So then this is interesting because he's kind of hedging his bet. He's trying to be polite here. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. No one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. Is Jesus going to have any of this politeness? None of it. Amen, amen, or truly, truly as the ESV. That's maybe my one quibble with the ESV. I wish they would have kept the amen, amen. Amen, amen, I say to you, unless one is born again. Now, anothen is the Greek and it's ambiguous there. It could mean born again or born from above. Probably a better argument to be made born from above. Okay. But you're, that's an open question. Amen, amen, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. All right, what has, what has, I mean, picture this. You're Nicodemus, you've just paid him several compliments. Everything is supposed to be going swimmingly. Maybe he's supposed to return a nice little compliment or some kind of, you know, just socially appropriate and acceptable response. Not Jesus. Amen, amen, I say to you, you must be born again. Or rather, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. I mean, if you're Nicodemus, how do you take this? It's an indictment. So far are you away from the kingdom that you have to utterly and completely be born again. Complete do-over. <laughs> Complete mulligan. Um, what you are right now with all of your politeness and righteousness, pharisaical goodness, um, half understanding of who I am, all of this must go into the grave and you must be born again, born from above. Otherwise, you're not even going to be able to see the kingdom of God. So that's, look, Jesus is essentially saying to him, I, really, I mean, even though it's forceful and upfront, it's very loving because he's saying, no, you don't get to redeem the old Adam. You have to utterly be put to death and rise again and be made new so that you can see the kingdom of God. Okay, well, Nicodemus has no idea what on earth to do with this. Um, he's just thinking in the way of fallen human flesh. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? He's got no other... I mean, this may be rude, but I doubt it. It's more just, I know of no other birth, no other new birth than this birth. 
Jesus answered, Amen, amen, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit. So here's the mechanism, not going back into your mother's womb for a second time, but by water and the Spirit. And then he says, unless this is the case, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So new birth is required. And then he goes on to say, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Okay, so to be born of the flesh is flesh. What does that mean? Children not of God, but of Adam. Yeah, children of Adam, born of the flesh. Simply flesh. There is no rebirth according to the flesh. You can't crawl into your mother's womb and be born and try over again. Even if you could, that would do you no good. You're still flesh. You see, you're still fallen. You're still part of this fallen line and race. You must be born anew, born again, born from above, born not of the flesh but of spirit, born of water and the spirit, baptized and thus becoming a new creation. A child no longer of Adam, but now a child of God. Make sense? Okay, so that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit, and thus to be born again through the waters of holy baptism is to truly then be spirit. Because that which is born of the capital S spirit, the editors have put that in rightly, is spirit. That is, we are no longer ontologically within our essence of the flesh, but rather of the spirit. Okay, so that's a profound thing that takes place then, because ontologically, after baptism, ontologically I mean in our very being, our very nature, who we are, what we are, is changed in the waters of baptism. We can now see the kingdom and we can now enter the kingdom. In regard to entering the kingdom, you can think even of like Remember in Matthew's Gospel how it was, heaven is now opened to you. You can enter the kingdom. You can see the kingdom before you couldn't even perceive it. It's accessible only by faith. Now you've been given the eyes of faith. You can see, you can perceive, you are enlightened. This is why some of the very first church fathers called baptism enlightenment. Because we were in darkness, we could not see. Now we've been enlightened, we can see. We who were sons of darkness have now become sons of light. Well, how does one become a son of capital L light? By being enlightened <laughs> and thus becoming, you know, Jesus Christ is the light of the world. And then we are also in him called lights. All right, so this changes who we are. And this then changes the very definition of life. To jump ahead of ourselves just a little bit in John's Gospel, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. Okay, so this is the point we're pressing toward. What is life? Is life the breath in your lungs? Is life the blood beating from your heart? Is life the mechanism of your brain chemistry? No. That which is flesh is flesh. That's not, properly speaking, life. 
What is life then? I am the way and the truth and the life. Life, properly speaking, is Jesus. Jesus is life. If you have Jesus, you can lose your brain function and your heart function and your lung function and still have life and have it for all eternity. So now we see that Jesus is life. And now we can start to see, too, that life, what does eternal life mean? Life forever with Jesus, having and possessing Jesus. So do we have eternal life right now? Of course. If we're baptized into Jesus, have faith in Jesus, we have life right now. A different life or same life than eternal life? Same. Jesus doesn't change. You see? So this is, this is one of the foundational biblical shifts where we don't think of this life and then the next life here so much as we think of continuity. In this life, in this place with Jesus, but always with Jesus. Thus, Jesus is always life. Eternal life is always having... So you can have eternal life right now. And so far as you perceive Jesus, you're already perceiving heaven now, or at least that key part of heaven. And this, of course, is why divine service is so meaningful and so important, where it truly is heaven breaking into earth, and it truly is rest, and it truly is a foretaste of that feast to come, and it truly is receiving from his cup life, receiving he himself. And it's, it's, this, it's this moment of time in which all the other nonsense is stripped away and we see what truly and eternally is. Jesus pouring himself out for the life of the world and for the life of all who receive his cup. And that includes us. So it's, a, it's an all-important, we need this strength, we need this rest, we need this revelation, we need this glimpse while we're in the midst of you know, so much darkness and destruction and lies and con- things contrary and things oppressive and afflictions and all the rest. How desperately we need Jesus, Jesus tangibly, Jesus in the, in the bread and in the wine given and shed for us for our forgiveness. There is life. And I think, I believe that that's what John is getting at. If we skip to John 6, I want to I show you this real quick. Um, now, this is controversial because not, not everyone in the history of the church takes John 6 as having anything to do whatsoever with the Lord's Supper. Um, I, my goal is to leave you free to make your own decision in this regard. But I do want to simply let the words of Jesus stand um, in their own right. So if you turn over to John 6, and in particular, let's... And yes, we're in the middle of this kind of dialogue he's having with the Jews. Let's pick up at verse 52. John 6, 52. The Jews then disputed amongst themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, again, Amen, Amen, I say to you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Okay, interesting. What is it that actually 
permits you to remain alive in, in this common, like, way of speaking? Well, you've got to have food and you've got to have drink. Yeah, that's what you've got to have. You've got to have food and drink. I think, um, you can go a lot longer without food, but not very long at all without drink. Yeah, but you've got to have food and drink. And we think that in food and drink we have life. And what is Jesus saying? You don't have life at all. Not unless you're partaking of me. And specifically then here, Jesus, I mean, if he's just generically talking about me, why is he mentioning his flesh and why is he mentioning his blood? So I'm tipping my hand here that I think you can't help but see this as sacramental. All right, but what does he say? Amen, amen, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Properly speaking, to just eat the food of this world and drink the drink of this world and remain conscious in this world, is that life? Jesus says no. It's not life at all. Now, this ties in with the point we were at pains to make in the early part of last week's section. Remember death? There's spiritual death, temporal death, and eternal death. Three facets of death. If you're not partaking of the flesh and blood of Jesus, you're still dead in your trespasses and sins. You have no life in you. You see what Jesus is doing here? It's incredible. So like in a very real sense, you can just look outside, look at the freeways filled with, and it's a shocking kind of thing because the whole world thinks it's alive. And you can walk out there and say, I see dead people. (laughs) Because you were spiritually dead in our trespasses and just simply waiting for our bodies to catch up to that temporal death and then the fullness of expression and eternal death. So here comes Jesus Christ to give life, true life, and apart from him there is no life. So to have Jesus is to have life. And again, I'm simply going to give this to you from Jesus himself. Amen, amen, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. Notice this, has, present tense, eternal life already. And then note, and I will raise him up on the last day. Wait a minute, does life even consist of you having this body, breathing, heart beating, brain functioning? Not according to Jesus. This body can go into the dirt and you've still got life. No less than you had it before. This is a beautiful, beautiful statement. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. That's us. We have eternal life right now. We're already immortal in Christ. And if our bodies die, so be it. It doesn't affect our life. And then Christ adds this promise. I will raise him on the last day. Our bodies will be raised up. Our bodies will catch up with what our souls already are in Christ. Jesus continues, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Okay, just in case you thought he was talking metaphorically. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I am, and I in him. And again, think about this. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. To abide in him and he in us is to participate in life. Life isn't a thing. 
It isn't a possession. It isn't ours. It's Him. It only becomes ours insofar as He is ours and we are His. Verse 57, as the living Father (laughs) sent me, and I live because of the Father. What's Jesus doing? His life is derivative of that life which is in the Father. In in one sense, we could take this Christologically as, as a reflection of He is begotten of the Father. So the Father has life. He sent me. I live because of the Father. And whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. Do you see the train? <laughs> Do you see the connection? The Father has life, He gives it to the Son. The Son has life, He gives us His body and blood, so that partaking of His body and blood, we have life. That life which is Jesus, that life which is the Father's. Do you see how we're drawn into the life of the Holy Trinity itself? This is eternal life. Again, life isn't this abstract thing. You can never have life apart from God. Apart from the one who is life, there's only death. Thus, eternal death are those who choose to depart from the one who is life. That's eternal death. Similarly, to depart from the one who is light is to have darkness. To depart from the one who is joy is to have weeping. To depart from the one who is peace is to have gnashing of teeth. To depart from the one who is rest is to have a worm that never dies. To depart from the one that is waters of new life is to have the fires of condemnation. You can see that hell is all framed in antithesis to who God is. Only in rejecting God then do you get exactly what you want, which is the opposite of God. Alright, so so look at this beautiful, as the living Father has sent me, I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like that bread of the fathers ate and died. Remember the manna? That's what he's talking about. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Because if Jesus was talking about it all metaphorically, would it be a hard saying? No. So what if he's talking about it sacramentally? It would definitely be a hard saying. They left him. Verse 61, But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. Notice the parallels with Nicodemus. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. What words? Eat my flesh, drink my blood, and you will have life. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit, should be capital S, and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who did, uh, um, those, uh, excuse me, Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. 
After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of? What are the words of eternal life? Eat my flesh and drink my blood, and you will have life in you, and I will raise you on the last day. Those are the words of eternal life. That's what we're talking about. Okay, so then life is given to us. This new creation in baptism, this new life is given to us and sustained in us in Holy Communion. These are the touchstones. These are the ways in which God is working a brand new creation and sustaining it in our midst. It's accessible only to the eyes of faith. It's accessible only to those who hear the Word of God and know it. To everybody else, it's just nonsense. Just like to his disciples, it was nonsense. And they left him and they walked away. So this is a hard saying. We don't get it. It doesn't make sense. It's nonsense. We're, on, we're out of here. Peter and the other faithful disciples call us to the same faith. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. These words that you have just spoken are eternal life. There is no life apart from you, apart from your word, apart from these things you have given. Okay, so that, tra that transforms then the way we view life. In a sense, and, and this is pushing it to an extreme, you're in heaven because Jesus is there. Otherwise, it isn't, it isn't heaven or it isn't paradise. <laughs> Jesus is there and therefore it is life. The same is true here. You have life here because you have Jesus. And here's where it's pushing it to extreme. Even if you were in hell, if you had Jesus, it wouldn't be hell. To have Jesus is to have eternal life. And so the very first thing we want to do is see that he is life, not, not this state here on earth, not the intermediate state, not the end state, just, just Jesus. He is actually life. And we have him already. We'll possess him forever. And only can death be properly foundationally understood in antithesis to him. Death is to not have him. Life is to have him. Okay. So that, that hopefully rearranges our mental furniture in a much more biblical way of thinking in terms of eternal life. We have it already. All right. I saw a hand or two coming up. I want to entertain those. Um, are we running a microphone? Yes. All right. Sorry to do this to you. We've got a gentleman all the way up in the front here. Okay. I've noticed it gets harder. It does. <laughs> it's interesting to note to your point that um, St. John does not, well, and Jesus doesn't use the term for life, uh, bios, as in biology. He uses uh, zoe. And then also in uh, verse 58, Jesus, uh, the, the ESV translates forever, but it literally in the text says into the age. So yeah. I thought, I was wondering if you had some commentary on, on that phraseology. Nope. <laughs> um, I mean, very, simp very simply, of course, there's this age the Bible talks about, and there's that age which is to come. So you even have some of this language of unto the ages of ages. I don't want to talk about that. That's way above my pay grade. Um, but I, but I, would, I would tell you this we very falsely get the idea that at the end of this life, everything goes personally static. At the end of this age, everything suddenly goes static and shuts down and is locked in place. And in our minds, what would that be but just terrible, terrible boredom? Um, nothing could be further from the truth biblically. 
Nothing could be further from the truth um, in terms of our perceptions of boredom. Um, heaven is dynamic, the ages unto the ages. We have no idea what's held in store. We just know that it's going to be good because we know who Christ is. Did I see one other comment, please? Uh, two comments, actually. One is, I thought we were not going to do the deep parts of John. <laughs> we're not. <laughs> <laughs> There are part there are parts of John where I'm like, uh, let's swim for shallower <laughs> shallower waters. I think this is pretty deep. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Um I think it's interesting. You brought this up earlier. In Genesis one, we have the Father, the Speaker, the Word, and the breath of God all there. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So so the God God is speaking, he's giving a word, and in speaking, he's breathing out. And so then we have here that Jesus is saying, unless you're born of me, of the word, mm -hmm. you have no life in you. Mm -hmm. But to do that, he also is breathing out, so you're born of the spirit as well. Yeah. You know, so, so that which is born of spirit is spirit, but God is again breathing into us the breath of life yeah. through Christ. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I mean, if, if John's gospel takes us into these kinds of deep waters where you go, and because it was made through the Word, the only way it can be unmade is through the Word. And thus the Word becomes flesh in order to die, that the old creation would die with Him. And He is raised in His body in order that the new creation might break forth, in order that baptism might have its power. And so there's a sense in which it could not be otherwise. And, and, and thus um, the Word at the beginning takes on flesh, brings it all to an end, mercifully, and returns in that flesh glorified in order to usher in a new age, and that age which is to come. Yeah. Let's pause there for the week. We'll do a little bit more in John next week, and then we'll launch into some of what the other evangelists, and um, St. Paul in particular, have to say about the intermediate state, about life, eternal life in general, the intermediate state, heaven, and then what's to come in the new heavens and the new earth. The Lord be with you.